In the following live session recording, Mike Griffin, Public Affairs Representative for the Georgia Baptist Mission Board, talks about the relevance of religious liberty to the priority of evangelism and missions. This session is about the theological and philosophical approach that churches should have regarding the rights of religious liberty in our country. Its goal is to help church leaders leave with practical understanding that promotes evangelism and missions. Let's join Mike now. All right, good to see you all. My name is Mike Griffin. I'm a public affairs representative with George Baptist Mission Board. Good to have Deborah Giddens. She's a member of the Public Affairs Committee uh, that supports and gives us guidance and direction uh, with George Baptist. I am from South Georgia. I've been in North Georgia for 27 years, pastoring up there uh, at Liberty Baptist Church. Uh, 22 years in a new church that we started up there. Born and raised in Thomasville, Georgia. Uh, in school, uh, ended up graduating eventually from Baptist College of Florida down in Graceville. And uh, pastored for 35 years in the state. Pastored four churches. And uh, Worked at the Capitol now for 12 years as a lobbyist. And uh, six of those years for Georgia Baptist, eight for Georgia Right to Life. Two of those years I represented both organizations. Uh, my son, Mike Griffin Jr., is with me. He worked with me for five years at the Capitol and helped drive me around the state. And uh, I've been a little bit of everywhere when it comes to talking about moral and social issues. I know you're thinking, what in the world is a Baptist preacher doing involved in politics? But I tell people, have you ever been a member of a Baptist church? <laughs> uh, everything's political. You can't even get into heaven unless you know the right person. And, uh, and that he knows you. But I ran for state representative in 06 in the 29th district, which is now the 32nd district. Out 10 points, lost by 30. Long story. Uh, but it projected me into working for Georgia Right to Life. And they hired me in 2007, started working in 2008 at the Capitol, lobbying for pro-life issues. And um, so today I want to talk to you about what's a very important subject, uh, religious liberty and its relevance to missions and evangelism. Let me share with you, we talk about this class, why it's important. Uh, this session is about the theological and philosophical approach that churches should have regarding the rights of religious liberty in our country. Now, the goal of the class is to help church leaders leave with a practical understanding that promotes evangelism and missions. And looking at that statement reminds me that I have not given you the notes. That's my sister here to help me do that. I, I didn't want to sit them in one of chairs and I to pick them all up. And if you uh, see one of these claws, if, you're, if there's not one in your seat, take one, you can have it. Um, if you got glasses, computer screens, look around you. There's some in some of the chairs. You can grab you one of them there. <coughs> Can't have too many claws wipe glasses and computer screens. So, you there's some notes. I've got about probably 85-90% of what I'm going to talk about. Of course, I'm going to be a Baptist preacher and I'm going to extrapolate a lot of some things. So, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. so 
uh, as I was I was mentioned earlier before y'all came in, this is bedrock. This is uh, what needs to be taught everywhere. And again, it's hard to. Uh, I probably need to work harder trying to make it a little more entertaining. But let's try to get right down to the brass tacks on this thing. I've got some scriptures that I want you to see, just to remind you that it's important that we as Christians understand that we do have a responsibility and we do believe in obeying, honoring governmental authority. And the scriptures talk about that. Matter of fact, in the Romans passage that I've got up here, it says, let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God, and the powers of be are ordained, ordained of God. Render therefore to all their duties, tribute to tribute is due custom to and custom fear upon fear, honor, and honor. Next, and, and that Romans 13 passage is important because God's given us three institutions to govern the earth, the home, the church, and civil government. It's, it's God's idea. Romans 13 is all about government, and those serving in government are to be ministers unto the Lord. Uh, people ask me when I'm wearing for state, state representative, what in the world are you doing giving up the ministry? I'm, I'm not giving up ministry. You know? If you go to some African, some Asian countries, for example, they will call it the, the Minister of Defense, Minister of Transportation, Minister of Education. They call them ministers. So, I mean, the, and so when, when government's carrying out its duties as God ordained it to, it, it is a service unto the Lord and to the people when they do that. And Peter had this to say. He says, honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. And then in Mark 12, it says, and Jesus answering and said, they'll render to Caesar. Y'all all heard that. Uh, things that are Caesar's, <clears throat> to God, the things that are God's. And uh, so now all this is true. We do have an obligation bef before God to obey those who rule over this authority. But listen, we must never forget that God's authority does trump governmental authority. The government is not God. Meaning, if we get put between a rock and a hard place, that is, if we're going to have to obey God or government, guess what? God God comes first. So with that being said, I want to show you a little quick little video about religious liberty and how it relates to the very first Baptist church in the state of Georgia. Martha, I am grateful for your willingness to follow me as I follow the Lord. This journey hasn't been easy. I want you to know that I am confident that your sacrifice will bring glory to Christ. Come on. My heart yearns to fulfill the Great Commission. May the Lord bless our ministry wherever he leads us. Daniel Marshall, the founder of Kaioki, was born in 1706 in Windsor, Connecticut of Presbyterian parents. After being converted at the age of 20, he served as a deacon of the First Church of Windsor for 20 years. Then at the age of 48, Daniel Marshall became a Baptist and was baptized by immersion. Four years later, he was ordained as pastor. 
and set about the gigantic task of evangelizing the southern area of the country. His journeys took him down the East Coast through settlements in Virginia and then North Carolina. And then in 1762, Marshall and his family came to Stevens Creek, South Carolina. In less than 10 years, he established eight churches and laid the groundwork for countless others. From there, he began his work in Georgia. On one of his visits to Georgia, around 1770, Daniel Marshall was on his knees in prayer as he conducted public worship. Suddenly, heavy hands were felt on his shoulders, and a young constable arrested Marshall. Well, Anyone here provide security for this man and ensure that he appears in Augusta Monday hence for his trial? I will. The young constable temporarily released him into the custody of a gentleman who promised to ensure Marshall's appearance at his trial. Mrs. Marshall was indignant about the proceedings and rose to denounce such a law. She supported her position by quoting several texts of scripture with much force. Martha's inspired entreaty was so convincing that the constable himself was converted. Mrs. Marshall was also present in Augusta for her husband's trial on the following Monday. A colonel presided with a parson of the Church of England. The trial began when the parson commanded the prisoner to read a chapter of the Bible. Now, Marshall was not known for his eloquence. In fact, one friend described him as a weak man, a stammerer, and no scholar. While Marshall was a man of little education, he was known for his earnestness and holy zeal. When Daniel Marshall finished reading from Scripture, the parson berated him severely and ordered him to desist from preaching in St. Paul's parish. He can't even read. You are hereby ordered to cease preaching in the parish of St. Paul. Whether it be right to obey God rather than men, judge ye. Marshall was released, and soon thereafter, in direct defiance of the law, the 65-year-old preacher moved his family across the Savannah River and settled in what is now Columbia County, Georgia. Here he served the remainder of his life obeying God rather than men. Soon after the trial, religious persecution ended in the Augusta area. Daniel Marshall organized Georgia's first Baptist church in the spring of 1772 on Big Coyote Creek. In the 78th year of his life, Daniel Marshall died. His son Abraham recorded his last words. Dear brethren and sisters, I'm just gone. This night I shall probably expire. But I have nothing to fear. I've fought a good fight. I've kept the faith. Henceforth there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still water. He restored my soul. With his very last breath, Daniel Marshall addressed his son Abraham. This same son succeeded him in the pulpit at Kaoki, where he preached faithfully for many years. Marshall's grandson, Jabez, followed his father Abraham as Kaoki's pastor, leaving a 61-year family legacy of ministry in this place. This old Kaoki building was erected in 1808, 26 years after Daniel Marshall's death. It is probably the third building. The first structure by Daniel Marshall was most likely a log church with primitive benches and a puncheon floor, but it could have been a frame building. It was in this first building that Daniel Marshall closed his fruitful life as pastor, preaching the gospel faithfully until his death in 1784. All right. That's just an example we can't take uh, for granted the, the privilege that we have of religious liberty. It, it was not always here. 
you had those that were willing to give of their very lives to be able to have that. And that's a monument out front of the church there in Appling County that talks yes. about that experience. That's near Appling County? That's but, Appling, Georgia. Oh, Appling, Georgia. It's in yeah. Columbia County. Columbia County. So that's near Augusta? Augusta. Yeah, and in it, in this, I had a big picture of it. I didn't bring it with me of the actual monument that you can actually read. You can't really read on this, but actually recites the story that you just saw depicted in front of you there, and about the fact that the guy that came to arrest him ended up getting saved <laughs> because he heard the gospel. And you know, just just showing you that even in our own state there was a time. You go to the Christian Index and looking at Gerald Harris wrote an article couple of years ago when I told him about it I had come across it and I just think it's just so neat when we look at it because we go to that passage scripture and what was on Marshall's breath was you know we ought to obey God rather than men and again that's not that we're here to um, to be hard to get along with the government because we, you know, we know we're supposed to obey God but part of obeying God is obeying the government unless the government tells us to do something that makes us disobey God. And so we honor the Lord by, by doing that. So you see, we're living in a day when our religious liberty is under attack in ways that many of our family fathers and fathers probably never dreamed that it's going to happen. And we're living in a day, unless the direction our country changes, we'll be forced to have to pay the same price that the first generation Christians paid. You know, when they were, you know, they had to be able to say, you know, is it going to be Jesus? Is it going to be Caesar? That's, that's going to be Lord. And they went to prison and men were killed. And so the question, um, so here's really the question, to have a First Chronicles 32, 12 type of approach, and that is this, is that the sons of Issachar, they understood the times and they knew what to do. And so I ask ourselves this question, do we as Christians know the importance of religious liberty today and do we know what we need to be doing to defend the religious liberty that we have given? And we're going to talk most importantly how does this relate to evangelism and mission? As you can see uh, in, the, in the story we just had it played a very important part. So there are basically five things that every <clears throat> Christian needs to know. We talk about the scope of religious liberty and we talk about the scope of religious liberty. We understand that the First Amendment was not designed to restrict the practice of religion to the confines of the church building. As a matter of fact, most people don't even know what the First Amendment is. You know, they don't even understand it. And if you look at it, it says, Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. That means that the practice of your religious liberty is not limited to the confines of a building on a particular day, at a particular place, or a particular thing that you just believe in your head. According to, to the First Amendment, we're to be able to carry it out. And so we note the phrase, Congress shall make no laws respecting the establishment of religion and you know the point needs to be made here that the wall of separation implied here 
there was a wall, and I know that Jefferson, what he said, I know what he was referring to, uh, the denomination and the thing, but let me just say this. There is a wall of separation between church and state, but there is not a wall between the state and God. Right. But what I'm saying is they didn't want the church to be the religion, so they just came out of that when they were in Europe. And so, but so there was a separation of church and state. In other words. There was a separation of ecclesiology from government, but listen to this, not theology from government. For example, every preamble in every state constitution, even in Hawaii and in, um, what's the state up north? Alaska, all recognize Almighty God and His guidance in the um, origination of that state. I mean, you couldn't hardly put that in anything today. People would be like Gomer Powell running down the road, citizens arrest, citizens arrest. I mean, you couldn't, I mean, that's the way it would be. And, and, and so it says here, we the people of Georgia, relying upon the protection, the guidance of Almighty God, do ordain and establish this Constitution. So, again, we need to be reminded of the fact of the free exercise thereof. So the bottom line is that the freedom of religion in this country is not just a freedom to worship on a particular day, a particular place, or only a particular religion, state-sanctioned state or approved. The freedom of religion is not just a right to believe certain things in your head, but it's a right to behave a certain way every day in life. And so the First Amendment is not confined, listen to this, to, to private worship, but to public practice. That's what it's about. So let me tell you why it's true. Uh, it's true because obeying God's not confined to a certain day. You don't just obey God in certain places. God is sovereign. He's omniscient. He's omnipresent. He, he's all-powerful. We don't just serve God on certain days in certain places. God is sovereign. Our surrender to Him is to be a sovereign surrender. So because obeying God is not confined to a certain day, a certain place, a certain building, freedom of religion is, is to be as inclusive as obeying God is. That's everywhere all the time. And then let's go to the second thing. We talked about the scope of religion. Now let's talk about uh, the conscience of religious liberty. And the conscience is this, the underlying premise of religious liberty is that the government should not set itself up as Lord of the conscience. You see, the founding fathers knew that government was never to try to tell us what we have to believe or even what we cannot believe. And this is the beauty of the First Amendment. As a citizen, you can worship who, what, where, when you want to, or listen to this, you can choose to not worship at all. This is all a, a conscientious right that we have. Now, when we talk about the government not being the Lord of the conscience or our conscientious right, what do we mean by that? Well, we mean, first of all, guess what? There's a court higher than the Supreme Court. Those nine Supreme Court justices are going to have to answer to God. Right? 
Did you know what? When you believe that, it, it makes a difference in the way you live. I mean, you're you're not. God says we're not supposed to be uh, men pleasers. Yeah, eye service has unto the Lord it means you only do these things when people are watching you. No, when you're living your life as a relationship with the Lord. You live that way as much as when somebody's looking at you as when they're not looking at you. Uh, because you know the Lord's looking at you, but it's not just an outside in, but when you come to know Christ as your Lord and Savior, it's an inside out. He's already in your heart. So that makes that that's the big uh, difference there. So here it is. There's a court higher than the Supreme Court. It's been said like this, <clears throat> the government may be my uncle, but it will never be my heavenly father. Second thing we mean is that every other freedom we have is based upon the first freedom, the freedom of religion, freedom of conscience. Think, get that in your mind. As you think about religious liberty, you're talking about freedom of conscience. In other words, freedom of speech. Think about all the other religious, uh, all, the, all the other First Amendment rights, the freedom of speech. Freedom of, of press, freedom of assembly, freedom to petition the government, the right to bear arms, if you go into the Second Amendment, are all not eat, not needed if we don't have a freedom of conscience, a freedom of, of religion. That That's paramount. I hear people say, well, the Second Amendment, well, for the Second Amendment, you couldn't have the First Amendment. Well, if you didn't have the First Amendment, you wouldn't need a Second Amendment. You understand? So that, that's paramount. And you wouldn't even have a right to believe in this. Second Amendment, if there was not a First Amendment. <laughs> so, anyway, so then thirdly, we mean that the freedom of religion is the key to the right to be able to communicate the gospel in the public. You see, the First Amendment and the freedom of religion in our country that, that gives us, what it does is it gives us the right to appeal to the conscience of man that in return gives leeway to conversion. That, that's why we have the preaching of the gospel, so as to stir men's hearts with the word of God, which is commensurate with the spirit of God when that happens. And so there can be no conversion until the conscience is stirred. I will never see my need to put on a parachute if I don't believe the plane is going down. That's right. <laughs> And when you share the gospel, you're saying, you need to put on this parachute because you're going to crash and burn one day. That's right. And God loves you so much, He don't want you to crash and burn. Here's the parachute, Jesus. <laughs> and you can float safely down and be in heaven one day. And so the conscience is all about that. So here again, here's the point. The freedom to choose whether or not we follow God, to have that is to have our conscience stirred comes from God. In other words, God is the one that believes that you and I should have the right to be used of Him in preaching the gospel to have men's hearts conscience <coughs> stirred. Here's the, here's the fact. Man does not give us the right to choose. God gives us the right to choose. He's the one that gives us the choice. Man does not put a demand on God and say, you have to give me a choice. No. God says, I'm going to give you a choice. And here, here's the framework of what that is. 
So all this is very important because why? Here it is. Authentic choice is key to authentic belief. You know, uh, if you don't believe something, you can do it, but you won't do it as a conscientious thing if you don't believe it. Um, that's what makes the difference. And, and the belief here is not just some mental assent. It's, it's, a, it's a full commitment to, you know, the reason I root for the dogs, I believe in the dogs, man. Amen. Go dogs. I mean, you know what I'm just saying? I, I'm committed. I believe it. Now, believe me, my commitment to Christ is far, far beyond my commitment to the University of Georgia. But I, I'm just saying there has to be something there to activate. Even James says, you know, a man says he has faith and he doesn't have work. He didn't have faith. Uh, so, the very point is this. Authentic choice leads to authentic belief. That's the same way when it comes to loving somebody. You can't make somebody love somebody. You just can't. They have to choose to do that. You can't make it happen. It has to be a choice. And here's the point. Love then fuels our obedience. You know, when I fell in love with my wife, I had all kinds of commitments to her, but they never felt like commitments because I wanted to. You know, when me and Lisa, we, we she went to Thomasville High, Central High. We didn't have text and Facebook, and only one of you or two of you know that. I mean, knew only only us knew what it was like not to have that. But suddenly so you had to pick up a phone and call, and typically the mama or the daddy answered the crazy Uh Yeah, this is Mike. Can I speak to Lisa? Who are you? <laughs> Could you imagine the texting and tweeting and Facebooking and Instagramming and Snapchatting if everything had to go through your parents? Might be better off on these kids, had Because mom and dad have to approve it. And the other thing is that Lisa, crazy as it is, she was crazy in love with me. They said she had to be crazy to be in love with me. But she wrote me letters. I don't know if Mike knew this. She would write me letters all the time. And I couldn't wait to go to mailbox. Hey, Let me tell you something. What it is, I go get that letter and I sit it on the coffee table and wait three or four days for a reading. You believe that? Shoot, I read that sucker all the way back to the house. I got it out, opened it up, started reading all the way back. You know why? Because she was telling me how much she loved me. And I loved her loving Amen. me. <laughs> I loved her so much I gave up my mama cooking me breakfast every morning to get married. Isn't that good? And so <laughs> you do some dumb things with your water. Yeah, I never picked that back up yet. But anyway, said breakfast or you want to stay with me? I think I'll stay with you. But um love. God so loved the world, that's what caused him to do what he decided to do. He chose to love. He wouldn't make he wants us to choose to love him back. He's given us every, man, I'm getting blessed. He gave us every reason in the world to love him back. Ain't no reason why you shouldn't love God. That's right. I, mean, you, I got one son. If I gave my son up to somebody, I mean, yeah, that'd be big stuff. Oh, yeah. That'd be really big. I didn't care to anything about God's name. I was way off the notes. But number three, the principle of religious authority or religious liberty. 
principle of religious liberty is based upon the order of authority that exalts God. Here, here's the order, order of religious liberty when it's being respected. Okay, which is not true today. But if if, if religious liberty is being respected, guess who's always first? Uno, number one o, God o, yes sir o, but he's always up there. Ten Commandments. What's number one? No other guys before me. Number two, that's where man goes. Man second. Guess who comes number three? Government. <laughs> God, others, government. There's the order. Government is last. But where is the order when religious liberty is being denied? The other way around. Yeah, government. Government is first. Matter of fact, my middle daughter was a part of the Young Republicans, which was a college group. And she came back and told me, said, Dad, one day we were having a, a, meeting, a meeting with those uh, college Republicans somewhere over there, maybe it was in UGA or somewhere she was with them. And they really, when they talked about where their rights came from, most of those college students, and you were a college professor, I'm sure you didn't teach this, but I'm saying they said that their rights came from government. That government determined what their rights are. That's all the intention of government. Yeah. That's yeah, right. generations. Yep. 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 That's right. That's how far it's been. And that's about how far you have to go back to get a lawyer who doesn't de make his determination based off of jurisprudence and previous law. He doesn't, they don't believe in natural law. They don't believe in going back to original right and wrong. It's all based off of court cases. So they're not looking at a standard. thing is, you ask the college students, and this is where they go. You ask the graduating seniors, and they like to be told where they could live, where they couldn't live, what job they could have, what job they couldn't have, right. and all that. No, they didn't like that. And then they said, well, would you like to have your income guaranteed? Would you like to be, would you like to be taken care of what you might have to work for? Yeah, we like that. <laughs> okay, so well, you can't up. have your cake and eat it too. Then. <laughs> it's so mixed up that nobody, not even the church, is doing anything with it. Because the church starts to lose when they say too politically. That's right, and and I know that political is just is about like using a four-letter word in church. But I would just have to say that politics. Is not wicked in and of itself. It's the people that get involved in it and make it. So the scripture says, when the righteous are in charge, people rejoice. When the wicked bear the rule, the people mourn. So when I run for state rep, old country boy opened up his truck. And he's not a member of my church. I was coming down the steps from the post office. He said, Preacher, come here. And so I come over there. He said, he said Preacher, what's this I hear about you running? And I said, you know, it's not it's not for wicked people. It's not it, it, politics is not wicked, it's the people who get involved and make it that way. So if we back out and say, I'm too spiritual to take out the trash, yeah. I'm too spiritual to clean the septic tank out anymore. 
then what's going to happen? It's just going to run over. Because yeah. we just were too good to get involved. But it's amazing. I've been down there 12 years. Okay. They come out of the woodwork. You know what I'm talking about. You've been there. They're down there. They, I mean, it's a miracle that we're just not totally overrunning this thing. Because if you could just sit in the committee hearings with me and hear them lay their cards on the table where they're heading. Now, they've already revealed their plan. Now, I already heard them say in the adoption overhaul bill that one woman testified that that Christians are not even fit to be foster parents if that Christian couple says that homosexuality is a sin. If they do not believe in gay marriage, they're not... We're, we're talking about trying to keep the government from making... Entities like the Georgia Baptist Children's Home to have to recognize gay marriage. And they've already said, we're already way beyond that. We're to the point that we're not even going to let you adopt children from a government agency if you hold a moral <coughs> view that homosexuality or same-sex marriage, if you consider it to be wicked or evil, you are a hate monger, you are a racist, or you're a whatever. I mean, you they, they just pour it out on you, and I was like, you just laid your hands out there. You, we've laid your hand before. We know exactly where y'all are heading. You're heading. You're not just demanding parity or tolerance. You're demanding approval and then a, a rebuke or a punishment for those that believe or disagree with you. So, yeah, I can get off the notes here. Let me give you just one. Yes, sir. No, no. I, I, you're You've been there, done that. One example of where church is faithful. The, 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 uh, the church and state on the Supreme Court where they found it. Right. You know, you know, church, church and state. And the the uh, separation of church and state. The mistake that the people made, and I don't understand this day why they didn't catch this. They called it church. There was and is a separation of church and state. Because the states in Europe and England were run by the churches. Right. And it was just what they wanted to do. And our forefathers left that and didn't want it repeated over here. Right. So they had a separation of church. But they never had a separation of faith in church and state. Because the Constitution, the, the basic documents, every one of them. Includes God's name in it, right? And and I think it's 61, 62. I mean, signed the Declaration of Independence. All of but two Christians, not Jewish, they were not Muslims. They were not. They were Christians, right? And two that weren't. One of them, I don't know about him, but Thomas Jefferson was a deist. Right. Who believed that God created all this and turned it into us to take care of it. Right. And they made a mistake, the churches made a mistake by not arguing at the Supreme Court that there is no separation between state and faith. Right. It would, it would have been a lot better. Yeah, because they would have never done anything that would have created a church out of the government. Most That was the whole purpose. Nothing they did, and nothing saying this, acknowledging God, which is exactly what happened to Judge Moore, 
Well, Judge Moore was actually removed from the bench, and I know partially met him. Uh, he was actually removed not because of the Ten Commandments. He was removed because he repeated over again to them that it, he felt it was illegal for him not to acknowledge God. And they said, if you are not going to stop acknowledging God, you'll be removed. He said, well, I will never stop acknowledging God. You know, that was, the whole issue came down to God. That was what it was all about. And, you know, he said, I do that when I was sworn in. I, I acknowledge my allegiance before God, and that's the way I'm going to operate this whole thing. And, and I understand, I'm going to talk about plurality and all this stuff in just a moment, but the original documents and the original founders of our country <clears throat> were talking about They were not talking about more than one God, Creator. You know, they they used so there was not any. Uh, you know, it was monotheism, so it was not uh, a pagan type of thing. Right. All right, listen. Let's go. Let's move on. So we look at the Declaration of Independence. We hold these things to be self-evident. Creator with unalienable rights among these life, liberty, pursuit, and happiness, or happiness would actually mean property rights in the 14th Amendment. That's basically the vernacular of what they meant. So they're basically three rights life, liberty, property rights, in that order. Because you can't have liberty if you ain't alive. You can't uh, have property if you don't have the freedom to go out and earn a living, pursue the dream that you feel like, of as a Christian, you feel like what God's called to do. Life, liberty, then you have property. Property meaning that's not communism, socialism, because property means you own something. Not the government's, it's yours. So, based off of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not steal. So, if it's my property and you take it from me, you're stealing. So, I'm just saying all these are are in our, in our founding documents. So, so, the point I so eagerly want you to see is that the unalienable rights, meaning those that cannot be denied or taken taken away from us. We talk about those rights. Those are the rights that are conferred by God, not by government. And so this is this is, and you know this teaching here for years at Georgia Southern. Few few of our college students understand again that our rights come from God, not government. The government's responsibility is to protect our rights, not determine them. So that's 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 what God gave the responsibility of government to do. So, I mean, just that point alone is, is pretty big. Now, let me tell you one reason why this is important to remember. It's important because if the government can take can give it, it can take it away. But if the government did not give it, then the government's responsibility is to protect it. And, you know, Ronald Reagan said that when, basically here, when government does not protect our first right, the right to life, then it's just basically a matter of time to all human life is diminished. Meaning, if, the, if, if, we cannot diminish the value of one category of human life, the unborn, without diminishing the value of all human life. 
So in 1973, when the Supreme Court said a woman had the right to kill her child in the womb, they just breached and jumped over the highest wall of sanctity and protection, meaning that if a baby is not safe inside of its mother's womb, a human life is not safe anywhere. So it's just a matter of time till that just crumbles, 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 crumbles. And then, and then, then the liberty crumbles. Then the property rights will begin to crumble. It just comes all the way down. And that's what he said. We started down a slippery slope. Matter of fact, Ronald Reagan said another quote. He said that abortion is not necessarily even a religious issue. He says it is a constitutional issue. Yep, absolutely. That's right. So we wouldn't even be debating this if we just uphold the Constitution. Yep. Now, let's go to the fourth. And it's four out of five, so we're getting there. Uh, the, the, freedom of re the freedom of religious liberty. Now, that's a redundancy, really. Because sometimes it's called religious freedom. Matter of fact, in my communication people tell me that it's better to use the word freedom than liberty. But well, what is the freedom of religious liberty? Well, it's based off of this. The defense of religious liberty is not the same thing as promoting religious or moral relativism. So let me get down in the weeds with this for just a little bit. The point I want to make here is that some Christians are afraid of promoting strong religious liberty rights for fear that it's going to promote that all religions are the same and that all morality is relative to the culture and that's simply not true. Now I've seen this false claim made against the Religious Freedom Restoration Act known as RIFRA. The claims are that it will promote Sharia law and will be will be uh, we will be oppressed by other religions by recognizing their rights. That's not true. Now let me tell you why. Because the Religious Freedom Restoration Act only restores back the original intent of the First Amendment and that religious liberty rights are to be protected with strict scrutiny, not intermediate scrutiny. In other words, the government has to have a compelling reason to limit your religious liberty right and then it has to do it in the least restrictive way. Since 1990s, when the Supreme Court struck down that strict scrutiny standard and went to intermediate, people like Bill Clinton and Chuck Schumer, along with the Republicans at the time, passed a Religious Freedom Restoration Act to restore strict scrutiny back to the free exercise. The same strict scrutiny that speech, freedom of assembly, freedom of the press. In other words, you, the state has to have an overwhelming, compelling reason to limit that. It doesn't have, it has got a high bar to overcome so that religious liberty protection is very high. That bar will never be so high that it'll be okay to kill a child in a religious sacrifice in the service because our constitution in the state says that, that religious liberty is not to violate um, term I'm trying to use. It cannot, health and public safety cannot be violated in order to uh, pr protect someone's religious liberty. You can't go out and beat your wife and beat your children as a religious right. But what we are trying to do is get restored back so that when you have court cases, the court will have to have a high right, a high standard to get over 
to deny you your religious liberty. And let me tell you what's coming. What's coming, and this is not a public thing, of course it's being recorded, but the concern out, out front that's different than the 1990s is that there are public accommodation laws coming. And in those public accommodation laws are things called SOGI, Sexual Orientation Gender Identity Laws. Among those sexual or those SOGI laws are going to be rights related to bathrooms, transgender bathrooms, so that when, if your facility or organization is deemed a public accommodation, which has already been attempted in Iowa and Massachusetts, and a lot of spending freedom has beat it back and they changed the law. They were going to enforce, like if you have a sign out front that says spaghetti supper, public invited, and your local city had an ordinance indicating transgender bathroom laws, your church would come under. That means a man who said he's a woman could walk in your women's bathroom and you could not remove it legally. Here's the other thing. What if you have a sign out front that says revival public invited? And it said the only stipulations that we're looking at in the future that keep that from happening is if you gave them a personal invitation to come or you were actually a member of the organization that was hosting you. If you were not personally invited or a member of whatever it was that you were inviting the public to, then it was a general public and it could be covered under a uh, public accommodation. So that's where we're heading with this thing. Um, I just want to throw that out there. Not really what all this is about. When we're talking about religious freedom, we're talking about, I mean, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. So, let me go back to what I was talking about the Sharia law thing. Um, the Sharia law will not go over because the First Amendment in and of itself will provide for it. That's all. In other words, the people that are against the Religious and Restoration Act apparently don't like the First Amendment either, particularly the free exercise related to religion. In other words, your problem is not the Freedom of Restoration Act, the Religious Freedom of Restoration Act. Your problem is you don't like the First Amendment. That's what I'm saying. Or it's being said that promoting rights for people to believe their own moral convictions will lead to moral relativism in our country, and that's simply not true. Let me explain. Uh, we as Christians have to understand there's a difference between, between uh, there's a difference in saying differences are accepted, listen to this, and differences are to be respected. In other words, I can respect your right to believe what you want to believe without having to believe it too. In other words, I can respect your right to differ with me without agreeing that you are right. Uh, one of the problems that we're seeing in our country is that we've begun to label disagreement as hate speech. We're seeing the God of the sexual revolution become the supreme God of America. In other words, this is a God that demands its rule over government. It, it demands its rule over politics. It demands its rule over culture as a whole. We're seeing the God of political correctness enforcing censorship of speech. 
ideas that conflict with its belief and agenda. We're actually seeing people who will get on microphone in front of the TV and say, basically this, I would not have hit you if you had not believed what you believed. In other words, the reason I hit you is because you believed it. If you don't want to be hit, don't believe it. <laughs> and to say it, we're turning it upside down. And uh, so there are two facts that we got to get straight in our country. Number one, I don't have to agree with you in order to love you. I can still love you even if they're disagreement. Agreement is not the premise of me to love you. Okay? Number two, if I disagree with you, it does not mean that I hate you. Nor does it mean that you necessarily even hate me. Disagreement does not have to equal hate or racism. I mean, it's because we disagree with you. I don't think you're right. And so here's the important point. The important point that we as Christians must never forget is that biblical Christianity believes in a free market of ideas. Now, Let's ask this question. Why? Well, I'm going to tell you why. It's because we believe in our product. You know, free market, competition, a free market enterprise that we have in our nation today. And in other words, I don't have to shut down all the hamburger places in order to have my hamburger. Let me tell you how I make my hamburger number my hamburger is better than anybody else's. And I don't have to keep you from making hamburgers for me to prove that. A free market of ideas doesn't say, you can't say what you believe because what I believe is true. But what I believe is true, I can sell it to you based off of the facts that it's true. I'm not trying to stop you from speaking. I just want to see it at the table. And I really believe, like in our schools, I would be for religious liberty week at school. If you can bring in every person you want to bring that believes anything, that believes in Martians, whatever, give them 15 minutes to lay his stuff out there. Give me an opportunity to share the gospel. You know, I just believe that just like when the Ark of the Covenant was brought in with all those other gods, they came in the next morning, all those other gods had fallen down on the ground. <laughs> I'm, I'm just saying, if me sharing the truth is not going to do the good, then what am I going to try to do by by coercing people? It, it won't work. Um, so, because we believe the product, here's the other thing, gospel wins out. We don't have to keep others from the table of ideas. We just want to see at the table, and we believe the truth will defend itself. And that's what Dr. White said when he first hired me to take uh, Ray Newman's place, a dear friend of mine, great guy. And he's, you know, basically Dr. White's point to me was, we want Georgia Baptist to have a seat at the table. When there's decisions being made in the state of Georgia about public policy, that will affect our members. You know, preachers today, unfortunately, get to thinking they don't need to care about religious liberty unless it affects the church. Well, I'm going to ask every, I don't know if any preachers in here. Any preachers? Well, let me tell you something. Where do preachers get their money in the church? From other preachers? No. From businessmen and businesswomen out here in the free market who need their religious liberty rights protected. Why? 
you know, this is not all about money, but let me just remind you something. Uh, folks work, they tithe, they give to the church. I get paid off of that. The gospel goes out off of that. Ministries go off of that. Religious liberty is not just important in the church. Religious liberty is important for your church members out there on the job where they're working at. I mean, it's going to affect their livelihood. So we just shouldn't wait till there's a knock on the door because you know what would be like Martin Nemo. It, too late. Too late. And it came for the trade unions. I didn't say anything in World War II. Came for the process. I said anything I was a cat. Came for the Jews. I didn't say anything with the Jew. Came for the communists. I didn't say anything I wanted the communists. And then he said, one day they came for me. And guess what? There wasn't anybody left. Nobody could speak for me. They were all gone. Because I didn't say anything because it wasn't affecting me. Just like Terry Shabo. You know, Terry Shabo's not my daughter. Why should I worry about it? Well, why do we have to wait until it lands on our doorstep? Typically, when it lands on your doorstep, when public policy hits you in the face, it's too late to call Mike Griffin and say, what can we do? I'm going to say, well, you should have responded when I told you I need you to call up here and change this thing. And how's that? Now you got to nice, obey or stick your hands out. <laughs> I mean, you know, you, you've waited too late to do anything about it. Um, so the truth will defend itself. And so I go to this principle, persuasion versus coercion. You have to remember the biblical Christianity is not advanced by coercion. In other words, we can't be, we can't go out here and force people to be converted. You know, here's the sword. You either believe Jesus or I'll cut your head off. That, that may work in Islam, but that doesn't work in Christianity. It's, it's, a, it's a heart issue. It's not something that you can make something do. So it's not advanced by coercion, but rather persuasion. We do see that word persuasion. I just preached a message Wednesday night at church on the ministry of reconciliation. And Paul said, we beg you to be reconciled unto God. He said before the, the emperor, he said, you know, thou almost persuadest me to be a Christian. Well, how was Paul doing it? Did he get him down on the ground put a, put a Dutch hole on his head? No, he was sharing the Word of God in the power of the Holy Spirit. And, you know, basically the king was resisting the Holy Spirit and said, no. Paul said, no, we go out and persuade him, not coerce him. We don't manipulate their will. You know, we don't, we don't manipulate their will. We're not trying to manipulate their emotions to make them do something. Uh, no, we're going to confront the will with the truth so that they will choose to submit say yes. Um, so again, let me remind you that pluralism is not the same as relativism. In other words, we are not saying that just because you have the right to speak that you're right when you speak. Therefore, the gospel does not require us to stop other people from, from speaking. You know, we were accused of this for so long. The last hundred years, Christians have been accused of, of censorship. But now, it's, it, now actually, there is censorship, but it's against us. That's where it is. We, we, don't, we, don't, want to, we don't want you to have a voice. Because the people hear you, they're not believe That's the power of the gospel. Faith comes by hearing hear by the word of God. And so number five, the last thing is the responsibility of religious liberty. In other words, the, the, the biblical Christianity requires that we stand up for religious liberty. And this is where and they knew what to do part comes in, in the 
Chronicles passage. You see, we have to understand that the right of religious freedom will not prevail if we don't defend it and stand up for it. Biblical Christianity demands that we stand and not take it for granted. So why should we stand up for religious liberty? Well, first of all, we as Christians are citizens of two kingdoms. Did you know there's a sense, in, a spiritual sense, in which all of us are carrying a green card? In other words, we're just passing through here. This is not our home. We're actually citizens of another country. I mean, that's what, when Paul wrote to Philippi, it was a, it was a Roman colony. It was Romans living in Philippi acting like they were in Rome, but they were not in Rome. They were, they were not in Rome, but they were Romans. And so God's, once he saves us, our citizenship is somewhere else, but we're living like those citizens uh, even here. But now seeing this is true, now listen to this. Paul didn't get so spiritual about that that he couldn't use his Roman citizenship to justify the preaching of the gospel on earth. Actually, listen to this. Paul used his citizenship as a platform to preach the gospel. Now, I'd love for you to ask me why do I work at the Capitol? Why am I down here? Why do you care? Thank you. Because I love God and I love people. Why? Because God loved me first. He sent his son Jesus to die on the cross to give me my sin. That's why I'm here. Take that out of it. And I'm just... You know, I'm just some other reprobate down here going for gold, gal, glory, and games. <laughs> you know that, that's that's the you know the capitals of 4G network, gold, gals, glory, and playing games. And let me tell you something: those four Gs will destroy a preacher. If money becomes, if he falls into sexual immorality, uh, glory, narcissism, you know, thinking about it, it's all about me. And games, just playing games, and you know, not really being, you know, being political. Just trying to get this so I can do this, and doing this so I can get this. You know, that's all. That's all it is. So we're we're citizens of, of, of two two kingdoms. So remember, the first three words of the Constitution are, "What we the people, we're the government." This is not a responsibility that we can blame others for. Listen, you're it. When I was a kid, I used to play tag. What happened when you tagged the next guy? What did you say to them when you tagged them? You're it. <laughs> okay. Well, let, me, let me tag you for what's wrong in America. You're it. You're the solution. You're the problem. You're, you're, you know, you're, there is no, either you're either part of the solution or you're part of the problem. The preacher said years ago, he says, only two things in the middle of a road a yellow line and dead comes. You got to cost to be in the middle. I mean, when it comes to being right or wrong, we, we're supposed to be. Part of the problem, I mean, a part of the solution, not part of the problem. There's no middle ground in here. God doesn't call us to be a jellyfish. We're just kind of floating around wherever it's easy. And so the example that sticks out in my mind here when we talk about this, you remember Jesus in front of Pilate? And we all love bonding with Jesus in front of Pilate. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm right there with you, baby. I'm, I'm with you. I'm bonded. we tight. But here's the deal. In our nation, we're not only Jesus. We're Pilate. We're Pilate too. We're both. No, we're not only there getting persecuted with Jesus, but because of our responsibility in government, because it's to get its 
consent from the governed, and our government has a way for you and I to participate. So if we don't participate, guess what? The ones who participate get what they want. I mean, we, we that's why it's, in, it's imperative that we teach in our churches Christian citizenship. How can we be a good Christian and be a good Christian citizen? A citizen of what would God have us to do? Let me let me give you some ways. It's not even you know. Here they are. Number one, register to vote. I mean, I mean, sharing the gospel, praying. But apart from those spiritual duties, what are the physical duties? Register to vote. Uh, number two, vote. There's only one thing worse than not vote. Vote for the wrong person. Yeah. yeah if you go, when I was running for state rep, if you was going to vote for my opponent. I just said you not even vote. <laughs> I mean, I'm just saying. But if you vote for the wrong person, so how do you how do you vote for the right person? Stand up with God. What you going You have to be informed. Yeah. God knows what's right. He teaches it to you. Well, that's what I'm saying. But I mean, you got to find out what that person believes. You know, when we had we had a congressional race up in the ninth district when uh, Charlie Norwood passed away. Uh, and no, when Charlie Norwood passed away, they they put. Zell Miller in. No, that's I'm thinking Senate. Yeah, Charlie, Charlie Norwood in the congressional race. There were nine Republicans running for that seat. Nine. Paul Brown was one. Paul won. You know what I did? I had every one of them come to church. Every one of them said they were a Christian. You know what I told them? You come up, tell me what Sunday night you want to come, and I'll give you 10 or 15 minutes and you should share your personal testimony. And all of them came, and one of them said, I don't want to come. Why? Because I don't think politics would be in church. Hey, dude, I'm just asking you to tell us when you came to know Jesus. Don't tell us to vote for you. Don't tell us anything about your political campaign. We just want you to talk about your relationship with God. And they all came. They all came. And I think, you know, again, that was no dog and pony show. They all said they were Christians. Come and tell us how you came to Christ. You know, again, other churches of other denominations and races do it all the time. But if we do it. I'm going to say it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, say, you don't have to say what I'm saying. I mean, I'm just saying, why is it that that's not wrong? I, I'm not saying that it is wrong. I'm saying, and I'm not saying that churches ought to put campaign signs out front. I'm not saying they ought to endorse candidates. I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm a million miles from that. I'm just saying we are to. Uh, be somehow uh, a part of the process. And I tell pastors, don't go as far as some pastors. You need to know what your congregation will let you do that you can do it. But you do need to push that as far as you can. Tell the truth. Right. And don't destroy your church to do it. But you need to teach, educate. You know, education in the social moral issues and politics, like what I deal in, is what location is to real estate. Location, location, location. In my work, education, education, education. The more education I can do of, of, of the electorate. And listen to this. Politicians who are just interested in manipulating the system want you to stay dumb, happy. I mean, they want that. They don't want you to be an informed electorate. Is a death nail in a politician. It is a breath of fresh air in a statesman. 
Because a statesman, he wants you to know what he believes. He wants to know what you believe. You know, a statesman, his whole purpose is not the next election, but the next generation. A politician, it's not about the next generation. It's about the next election. That's all they care about. And there's a difference between, between the two. And then number two, as Christians, we have a relationship with Christ that is personal. Listen to this. But it's not private. It's personal, but it's not private. Let me tell you why that's true. It's because, first of all, we have a declaration given to us in the Great Commission. And that declaration is to go into all the world and to preach. Use your mouth. Live your life. Uh, And then number two, you look at that. God's not only given us a declaration about what we're supposed to do. He's given us a demeanor to do it in. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. So God never calls us to ever do anything that he doesn't equip us to do for him. I mean, he's not telling us to go out here and share the gospel only. He's telling us to share the gospel. Why? Because we've been changed by the gospel. Witnesses, personal experience. That's what it talks about, witnessing the gospel. Now, we have to understand this. Whether they know it or not, I believe the devil uses people and they have no idea the devil's using them. They don't have any idea because he's a deceiver. He's tricked them. They're thinking they're doing that. And they actually think that they're doing right, but they're doing wrong. But let me tell you what the goal is shut the gospel down. I believe the devil has a twofold goal in all that he does. I've never heard this anywhere. I'm just making it up myself. But I think that twofold goal. Number one, keep you from getting saved. Yeah. He doing everything he can to keep you from getting saved. Number two, if he fails at his number one goal, he's got a number two goal. Number two is to destroy your witness and to keep your mouth shut. <laughs> he wants to make you the Arctic River, frozen at the mouth, so that you will never do anything. He wants to get you to live immorally so that you will destroy your testimony. People are not going to listen to you because you say one thing and you do something else or just keep you afraid. God's not giving us a spirit of fear, but the power of love and a sound mind. And I really believe the whole goal of religious persecution is eventually to get to the gospel. Now, Janet Folger, uh, back in the early to mid-2000s, wrote actually before I ran for political office. I believe she wrote this or right thereafter. So that was around 2006. She wrote a book called The Criminalization of Christianity. You get that book and read it, uh, you're living in it. I mean, you hope that book never comes true. But listen to what she said. She says, as a Christian in this country, you may be understandably, understandably reluctant to speak out on moral issues like abortion, homosexuality, pornography. And listen to this. But while we have a right to remain silent, that is in our nation, that's not what God calls us to do. Because, listen to this, if the world can silence the truth, it'll silence the gospel. Why? Why? Because that's the goal. That's the whole goal. What's the title of this class? It's Religious Liberty's Impact on Evangelism and Mission. It ain't about the LGBT. It ain't about sexual orientation, gender identity. It ain't about public accommodation laws. It's about shutting down the gospel. That's going to use those other things 
to do that. It's not going to say that because that would be too obvious. And people who would be against it would stand up and fight more if it were shown exactly what they're after. But no, they're going to say, church is not supposed to be involved. You need to do like that's what Hitler's told the pastor. He said, "Listen, you you give the heart and soul, Germany, to me, and you let the church. You take care of the church. That's what God's called you. You should put the shepherd church. Leave the country up to me." And you know what they said? Wow, that's really spiritual. We're going to do that. Six million Jews later, dead, uh, because the church just said, Whoop, "We're not going to say anything." And then they sing it. Hear people coming down boxcars, crying and screaming, you know, in those cattle trailers going to the, you know, be killed. And they just sing a little louder so they didn't want to hear it. Well, you know what, if they heard it, they might have to give their life themselves to do something like that. So, so sir, question on that, right? Yes. How in the world, I mean, the thing is, is we, we need to take a stand, right, as Christians. The thing is, is I don't believe any of the churches know how to take a stand. It's like, what do you do to take a stand? How do we literally when you see CNN televising this garbage, knowing it's true, then how about what is it going to take a Christian to get on there and to tell the truth uh, in front of all these people well, that are lying? How in the world you're does not. that happen? Well, you're not. I, let me say. I, let me just go ahead and say this: There's nowhere in the Bible that God ever said the world's going to give you a fair shake. Yeah. I mean, so, but so he, but look, he, here's where the world has been successful. They've shut the pulpit. They have shut down the one place that everybody says they can do what they want to do. But they, in other words, too many of our pastors have complied. They're not being persecuted. They're not, they're not saying a thing out here and getting shot like I am. They're just not saying anything. And they're not saying anything wrong. They're just not saying what needs to be right. And so... I have, I've asked this question. You're, you're asking a legitimate question. That's asked me every time I teach one of these sessions. And I say, um, the world knows that this right here, as it represents the pulpit in the churches of Georgia Baptist, of, of 3,600 churches, 1.5, 1.4 million people in this state, is the most powerful. It's more powerful than CNN. It's more powerful than Fox News. If the pulpits of this state were aflame with this truth, speaking the truth in love, not getting up there and, and showing off and being ugly, but just simply, you could change this nation overnight from the pulpits. The pulpits are solid. It is the most connectivity of any social media. The pulpit and the people sitting in the pew there's more connectivity there than anything we can do out here on social media. And it, and it is shut down. So I think it begins in the pulpit. Now, I don't mean to get up there and pull out a whip and go whoosh, whoosh, and just beat the stew out and all you're going to do is preach about CNN every week. But I'm just saying, what's wrong with preaching a biblical text on what marriage is? You don't have to say anything about this. So you didn't say anything about the Supreme Court. What about preaching once a year on sanctity human life? We're going to preach a message on yeah. sanctity human life and just preach a good Bible sermon on what God thinks about human life. And it, I'm, dealing with, I'm, I'm being hit on Facebook, a couple of bad posts the last couple of days. I was in AJC this morning, uh, this afternoon. And, and what's wrong with preaching a message? I preached a message against gambling 
and a candidate for Congress was sitting in my uh, service, sitting on the second row, and as they walked out, they said, you changed my mind. I'll never buy another lottery ticket. Because I've never heard, she said, I've never heard anybody preach against gambling in church. And again, you have to get up there and just excoriate everybody and just shave their legs and they're bleeding when they leave. But just talk about how can you say you love somebody when you're out here taking money from them? Yeah, that's right. Gambling's not investing. Investing, we're all lose. Gambling, you can't be a winner unless 90% of people lose. That's right. I mean, I, I'm, but again, do you want do unto others you have them do unto you? I mean, you can, you can find all kinds of ways to deal with some of that. Uh, what about all the social issues, sex trafficking? You know, just related to gambling. I mean, what about sex trafficking and preaching and talking about that? What about the you know sexual exploitation of minors that's going on today? And how about how about pornography? Again, listen this is what she said. Here. Let's go back. Yeah. Listen to what she says. I want to point this out. Because, and listen, I'm, I'm for church growth. I'm doing, I mean, we're changing everything in our church for really rich people. But listen to this. If these are not three sins, at least three, that Jesus Christ, you know, went to the cross to die for, to forgive us of, but listen to this, to deliver us from it. Not just forgive us so we keep on doing it. He, he, he wants to forgive us of those three sins, and then He wants to empower us to, to overcome those sins. If those are not three sins that Jesus Christ died on the cross for, that we ought to be preaching about and say, now come to Jesus and you can get away from this stuff. Then we don't have enough. We don't have, why do we need the gospel? We'll just go out here and say, this is, this is a Liberty Country Club. You come in here and we're going we're gonna to make sure you feel good and we're going to preach the truth. You know, and, and here's the other thing. Any defense of truth leads to eventually defense of the gospel. And here's my point. If the gospel's not true, then nothing's true. That's right. Think about it. If, 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 if what Jesus did on the cross did not happen, God did not do what he said he did, and there is no God to do what he said he did if he did it, yeah. then you might as well be Peter Singer, who was an ethicist, at Princeton, who said there's not anything morally wrong with having sex with an animal. Because if there ain't nothing right, and there ain't nothing wrong, then who are you to tell me what to do? Because my, I'm just, every man doing what's right in his own eyes, just go out here and get with it. And that's what it looks like, every man doing what's right in his own eyes. So I'm saying, if I defend, if I speak on the truth dealing with gambling, or abortion, or homosexuality, Pornography, all that leads back to the gospel. But if the gospel is true, then the gospel determines what is true. And so I, I'm just saying, the, you, how can you separate religious liberty from all of this? And so then lastly, we as Christians have a responsibility to protect the freedom of future generations. Y'all remember the situation with uh, Ahab and Nabal? And, and he just kept trying to buy that land from him. And, and he said, Give me the bottom line. Why would you sell me this land? He said, I'm not going to give up my inheritance. This ain't got nothing to do about money. It's about my family. I can't give my land up just because you want it. Of course, you know, Jezebel had him killed and they got the land. And so here I am. I can't look at this and start crying. 
that's uh, five of my six grandbabies. And they're looking at me. That's like the Mona Lisa. If I go over here, it's still looking at me. Barney <laughs> Five in the home of the eyeball. Wherever we go. I mean, wherever I go, I can't get away from their eyeballs. Because they're looking at me and say, What you doing about it, Jake Paul? One day when I go to be with the Lord, they call me up and say, I know my Jeep Paul. Yeah. yeah, my Jeep Paul, he knew Jesus. My Jeep Paul, he preached the gospel. My Jeep Paul, he ran for political office. My Jeep Paul, he served for years at the and the, the legislature, he did everything he could to stop everything he could from happening. He, he was there. He did it. I know he was there. I know he did. And I'm just saying, if you don't even believe there's a God, and I don't even want to entertain that thought, let's just say you want to believe that. Don't you care about ministry? Absolutely. I mean, but he's, the scripture says, if we say we love God, but we don't, that we've never said. Yeah. And we don't. Then how can we prove? How can we prove we love God when they're saying we don't believe people to say every day, every day, so every day? And so here it is. This is it. We got to go. Founding fathers are willing to do what? Three things. Three things start this nation. They give their lives, their fortunes, save God. Why do we think anything less than this is going to be needed to preserve our nation? We got to be willing to suffer for that which is right. Here's the problem. Pogo. I met the enemy. It's us. A concerted effort on the part of the Southern Baptists to go after this. Yep. Start a church, a denominational line project. Stop this. They put a lot of preachers in jail. Yep. But I'll tell you what, still be that, deacons will go with it. Yeah, that's so right. you can take me, but you don't take me too. Yeah, that's right. We'll get some more trucks. Yeah, uh, first three words, if my people, first three words of God's Constitution, I would say is Second Prophet 714, if my people. So if my people will be we the people, we exponentially become salt and light. See, the government and the world doesn't want me and you in the workplace, in the government. In the home. It's like you don't exist. We want you, but we don't want you in there. Yeah. And God's not calling us to act anyway. He just called us to be who we are, where we are. So we're not called to act like Solomon. He said, You are Solomon. So if you're walking with me, you're not trying to be anything. You are something. That itself. Father, thank you for this time together tonight. Uh, Lord, uh, thank you these here tonight, God, we don't know what you will do. It only takes a little and be placed in your hands to turn it to a lot. We trust you for being down in Christ's name. Amen. I'll be glad to answer any questions. I didn't I didn't want to keep any longer than we were supposed to get, but I'll be glad to answer any questions. Or you got any comments, feel free. That's, a, that's either a good sign or a bad sign. I don't think it's a bad sign. Bad sign, Bear, we're so confused, we don't know what to say. <laughs> The good side is, hey man, this is great. I don't need nothing else. <laughs> so, I, I had a question because um, I didn't get it down in my notes, but I think you said there's three things you need to do when you register to vote and vote and be educated. So, well, what was number three? Be registered to vote, 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 and then vote for the right person. Person. 
Let me add. Let me add. Let me add some more to that. <laughs> if you're gonna go buy groceries, let me tell you some other things. Run for. Be willing to run for political office. Have an Isaiah six moment. Here am I, Lord. Send me. Yeah. I, Lord, I'll do it if you want me to. Lord, say no. I don't want you to. But you know I, what? The Lord may say, I need you. I wouldn't last five minutes. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. So, but I mean, again. Uh, what's a Baptist preacher doing down there? That's what they told. That's what he said. Here, here's what that guy said that day with his, with his door open, him hanging out talking to me. He said, Let me ask you something. What's going to happen to them sheep down there? I'm not sure. Why are you up there? Why are you up there in Atlanta? I said, I'm not worried about the sheep. I'm Lord to take care of them sheep. And immediately, what went through my mind is that's exactly what they said to David. When David came over there, to fight Goliath. Why? Because the king wouldn't do it. His brothers wouldn't do it. Nobody else in the army would do it. He came over there. He didn't come of his own initiative. Scripture says his father sent him. And when he got there, his brother, his oldest brother said, who's watching those few sheep? In other words, you little punk, you ain't good enough enough to some wormy sheep. You know, he's like, what have I done now? Then he looked and he said, is there not a cause? Basically meaning, you're, you know, uh, demeaning me because I'm doing something y'all should be doing. And let me ask you this. What do you think David's sheep would have looked like if Goliath's crowd would have had their way that day? They'd look like I hope my backyard's going to look when hunt season comes. Deer will be hanging up everywhere. We'll be gutting and cleaning them. I mean, that's what they were going to do to his sheep. Let me ask you the Baptist preacher, the only one here. What's our sheep going to look like? We don't get out here and do something. They're going to string them up too. <laughs> stringing up our businesses, our members, our schools, our teachers. You know, they're going to be stringing them up. I mean, they're coming for them, but we're too, we're too good to fight. Yeah, an interesting thing here. John Lawrence is one of the greatest preachers I've ever been on. Oh, yeah, he's a friend of mine. He was doing interim. He made some inroads into this thing we're talking about here today. Right. The immorality and all that stuff. And several people left the church. Wow. I mean, a good number. So I'm sitting in my son's bedroom, right down the hall here in the men's class. And one of the guys got up and said, we better run that man off. He's going to run all my people off the way he's preaching. <laughs> and I got up and I said, I'm going to tell you one thing. I'm proud of what he's doing. I said, once he ran off, we don't need him around here. They've just polluted me up right. Yeah, well, right. Lord, 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 Lord,